How's everybody out there doing? Yes, we're bringing ourselves in for a landing. Another week goes by, and we are here. This is Rick Wagner getting it right here on KZZ Kid GLN, the Internet, uh, the uh, podcasting places, and uh, possibly uh, outside the window if you're listening while I'm recording this. So welcome back, everybody. I can't tell you how happy I am to have you aboard. And, well, let's just, just jump right into it this week. We have so many things to talk about. As I've said many times before, having too many things to talk about in a political, social, cultural talk show with a historical slant, since I'm going to throw a lot of modifiers in there, is probably not a great thing. But that's what we got now. So here we go. First of all, <laughs> and I wanted to bring this up because I thought it was important. Many of you out there, if you're like me and you're watching the news and you feel, oh, my gosh, what's going on? And you're seeing what's happening all around you and stuff. And you think, what's wrong with me? Is there something wrong with me? Well, I think I may have come up with a diagnosis. I mean, this probably fits me a little bit. Uh, see if, you know, it, it, it may give you an out in case somebody asks what's going on. Uh, it is. Uh, this came through in something that I get. Now, I get all of these legal updates, right, emailed to me and so forth. And if you'd like to have yourself feel kind of down, just read what happens with the lawyers are doing out there in the world. Oh, yes, sirry, Bob. It will make you feel like things are headed in a direction at breakneck speed, in the wrong direction. But this one is interesting. This was about somebody that uh, had sued a school district because of a student's behaviors and everything. And they, they had a sin. I had not heard of this before, and I thought, okay, I might have this. This It's called, uh, apparently this child was quite a bit of a problem in his school district, but he had oppositional defiant disorder, also known as odd. Oppositional defiant disorder, one of the definitions of it, is a disorder in a child marked by defiant and disobedient behavior to authority figures. I think I have that. It's nice to finally know. Now, for those of you out there, if somebody asks, what's wrong with you when you submit your opinion, you can just say, I might have oppositional defiant disorder and uh, should be treated differently. I should be uh, perhaps uh, have some sort of reparations might come up to it. Oppositional, <laughs> oppositional defiant disorder. I definitely think I fall into that category. I don't know what else goes on to it. I don't know what you take for that. Uh, I don't know. I thought just a, maybe a... Warm milk or a shot of whiskey or something in the evening was probably the best thing for it. But I'm sure there's something more complicated for it. But uh, there you have it. That might be the answer. Because there'll be all sorts of things, many of which we'll probably talk about today, that uh, will make you feel like you uh, have some sort of opposition to what's going on. And uh, maybe you, you need to have a you know some sort of name for it. Apparently it's odd. <laughs> oh, will it never end? Uh, apparently, as soon as we will. Remember... Things go on until they just don't go on anymore, and then they stop. Where we're at, we'll see. Remember, it's also like musical chairs. We're just circling and circling, and when the music stops, we'll see where we're standing and if there's a chair for us at the end of the day. Here's some interesting things I thought I'd bring up. You know, these things, many of which we talk about, you can find at our website, therickwagnershow.com or politicalviking.com, which is uh, where we are on the uh, Facebook and a couple other places. And, you, oh, you can also get our, uh, you can direct, you can go directly to our podcast, which right now are pretty much the shows. If you miss something or you want someone else to hear it, or you want to forward it to them, I'd appreciate that. You can jump into them right from our page. Or, gosh, you can go, as I've said before, you can go to uh, your uh, Amazon device or Google and ask for it or look on iTunes or all those places. I mean, I'm feeling kind of, you know, 
kind of big big news here, kind of a you know, wall to wall kind of thing, coast to coast, wall to wall. Um, and we haven't really been pushing it out there, except to you guys, and so I appreciate that. Uh, we're going to do a little bit more. I'm going to try and do, by the way, a a bonus thing this week, where because I went through and I looked up because I thought this is something that was interesting, and I tried to find historically kind of the commonality things that sort of uh, presage or are in the process of a civilization sort of being on the downswing. You know, what's what's kind of the things that come first or in the early stages of it? And I, I, I came up with a few, and I want to talk about those. So we'll put like a bonus podcast up there, 10 or 15 minutes, and uh, won't, we're not going to be on the show to have something different, start doing more of those. But uh, here's one that I thought was kind of interesting. Now, if you're thinking going to Portland, and I can't imagine anybody that is not either hopelessly lost or completely unhinged that wants to go to Portland, much less live there. But if you are, you'll be good to know that uh, they're trying in the state to decriminalize, in other words, make legal. I always like that. Decriminalize. No, you want to make it legal, right? <laughs> it's just it's just this terminology we live with these days. Uh, people's encampments and let homeless not just make it legal to camp where they want to, but let homeless sue for $1,000 they're harassed and told to leave by residents and things like that if they're in a place that the state would authorize you. Say, I don't know, you know, your doorstep, stuff like that. You know, places you got no business telling people where not to be. So Oregon just seems to be doubling down, despite the fact the place is, is turning into a, a disaster. It, it looks like a refugee camp with no order whatsoever. And they're just, the more it gets pointed out, the more people complain, the more the politicians there do more. It is, once again, it's government by defiance. Apparently, many of these legislators also have oppositional defiance disorder. Who knew? Now we know what to call it. Because they, they're going to defy the voters. Now, the citizens, anyway. Apparently, the voters, whomever they are there, have voted these people in. I don't understand what's going on with them, if they're all really high or... They're illiterate, or what the problem is, or they're just, you know, a feat. So they think, oh, well, this makes me feel good to allow people to camp on your doorstep, not mine, because I live in a large gated community with a wall around it and around my house. So I feel pretty good about them camping at your house and letting them do it, because it makes me feel like I'm really, really virtuous. Not sacrificing anything of mine, remind you, but pretty virtuous. So that's a, that's a crazy story. Uh, I, I don't know. And maybe it leads in one of the others I have up there. They've, they've had a poll out, and it's not just from some, you know, far right group, that young Democrats, particularly Gen Zers and late millennials and people like that, are not happy folks. And I'm not happy lots of the time either, but there, there's apparently a lot of uh, mental illness and sadness and everything else in these groups. You know, we may say we understand why that is, but it's still very sad. These kids are not all right, and they're frightened constantly. They are herded into into tribal groups. They're vilified in many instances. They're either told that they're an oppressor and deserve, you know, worse than it's happening to them, or they're an oppressed and they're being treated even more poorly than they imagine, and that there's no way out of it without the help of, I don't know, Uncle Joe Biden or... Maybe uh, somebody like, oh, I don't know, any one of these guys out there that uh, live off uh, 
you know, stirring up racial injustice that they discover all on their own. When you start mixing that together, people are very unhappy. And it's surprising in the sense if you haven't been paying attention, you think, well, things are better than they used to be in terms of relations between people and so forth, at least up till about two or three years ago. And now it feels like that things have been miserable for the last 30 years. Well, that's what many of these people are being told. They don't know anything. And this goes right into this study that I'm, you know, I, I believe I put up someplace. Uh, yeah, right. Eighth graders have never scored so low on American history and civics. You know, these people, like 30% of them know anything about American history and less about some about civics. So they don't know anything. And so whatever gets pushed into their plate through social media or regular media or any of this stuff, they don't have any any facts or knowledge to combat that. Whatever gets told to them, they just think that's the way it was. So no wonder they're sad, upset, and feeling hopeless. If you believed all this stuff that came out, so would you. You guys are too smart for that, but these guys don't have any educational background. They don't have any, they don't have anything to stand on. It's, it's very troubling. It's not just knowledge that gets passed over in schools like this. It is the idea that you are given no basis to make up your own mind because you have no facts or analytical skills taught to you and you become a mental tumbleweed. And that makes everyone unhappy. Okay, everybody, thanks for sticking around. Rick Wagner's still here getting it right all over the place. Well, you know, I wanted to bring something else up, too, because we were talking about earlier about those homeless uh, encampments in uh, Portland, the uh, People's Republic of Portland. Well, I'm not sure that fits anymore. It's not really the People's Republic in the sense that obviously the people don't have much to say, most of the people anyway, and it's not even a really good uh, dictatorship because they're dictating everything, but there's still large part of the population seeming doing what they want, which doesn't really fit in either. So it's sort of a new kind of uh, autocratic society where it's only autocratic to some and it's anarchy to others. That's not something you see a lot. I think that uh, eventually ends up pretty badly. Uh, there's been some other societies that have had that sort of uh, twin problem before. It's uh, It doesn't end up well for really anybody in those kinds of things. But what I wanted to bring up, too, is because I saw this on Friday uh, in one of the papers. I think it was in the, one of the British papers because uh, we don't get much uh, news to show how bad things are in California unless you go to either uh, some of the conservative sites or some of the foreign newspapers. But there was this great picture down. It looks like the frontage road to the 101 in California outside of San Francisco. And that's a major highway, one which, by the way, needs to be widened and improved because they haven't done much to it in terms of major improvements for a long time because they're far too busy with reparations and electricity uh, demands without actually building any electrical plants, you know, encouraging those and uh, starting a billion dollars worth of construction on a high-speed rail that doesn't go where anybody wanted it to go and isn't going anywhere anyway because it's just sitting out there with huge infrastructure begun but nothing moving forward. So they're spending their money on that. Anyway, the 101, uh, as I recall, I think it runs along the ocean there. And California, because this reminds me about this legislation that's going on in Portland, California has uh, allowed people to park alongside the roadway for an unspecified amount of time, in other words, to live there. 
So on a lot of these highways in California, and it, and it really started popping up outside of Silicon Valley, where they had a lot of workers who couldn't afford to live there, so we're living like in camp trailers and RVs and so forth along the road, which was not a great thing either. Now what's happened outside of San Francisco is now there's at least two miles, continuous two miles, and along the frontage road, that's along the water, which is kind of a nice view. And if you lived in California and you wanted a view like that, say from Malibu or, let's say, Carmel-by-the-Sea or one of those really ritzy places, you'd pay millions of dollars. Unless you just find a very old RV that you can somehow drag out there and put alongside the road and live in it, because that's what's happening. And they're living alongside the road on the ocean side of it looks like the uh, the 101 uh, frontage road, and nothing's happening. Now, you can imagine what that's like. First of all, not as scenic as you might hope it to be. You know, as I take a scenic drive along the ocean, eh, probably not what you're expecting to see. You're expecting to see some maybe uh, some elephant seals, uh, maybe a, maybe way out there like a like a whale. What you don't want to see is uh, someone in an RV uh, using a bucket for a uh, disposal for their waste, assuming they're even doing that. To say nothing about, think about the danger there. These people, I was looking at the pictures, you know, they have, they're out in front of their RVs, they're sitting around, this and that. The roadway isn't that wide. So you're going to have all sorts of problems with traffic and accidents and people getting, you know, banged up from uh, interactions between people and cars, which I can tell you doesn't necessarily turn out well. So they're okay with that. Just think about how that works as a political system where you live in a state that is so heavily regulated that I don't think you can go to your mailbox, and I'm not sure they're still allowing mailboxes, but assuming they were, without having some sort of permit or something from the government, right? And you certainly couldn't build a mailbox in front of your house, assuming that was still allowed, probably without another permit. Same place you get the permit for the birdhouse in the backyard would be my guess. So there's this constant pecking away keeping our bird analogy going here, at everybody's money by an over-regulatory state whose prime directive now is twofold. One, woke policies and making money. So it's particularly important to enforce woke policies that collect money for the state so they can enforce more woke policies. So there's this thing out there, and commentators have pointed out, that even in traffic enforcement, that you're much more likely to be pulled over for speeding, uh, especially if you're driving a car that looks like you might, you know, be able to afford the speeding tickets, of which are quite large in California, than say they want the highway patrol to do inspections of crazy old huge vehicles coming across uh, under the NAFTA agreements back and forth from Mexico uh, to see if the brakes work and you know all the lines on them are correct and anything like that. There's no really money in that. So enforcement tends to go towards people who have money to try and get it and not too much towards people that don't have any money, uh, even if there's some danger associated with what they're doing. Commentators, and Victor Davis Hansen has talked about this, how once you get away from the coast, then you start seeing areas that are just unbelievably unsupervised, let's say. He talks about how you could you can drive around places where uh, there's just some old trailers sitting someplace in a clearing 
and a bunch of extension cords running between them and maybe a few lights screwed into those and no one pays any attention. And that there's all the street corner vendors all over these places and especially outside of the cities and well, not even in the cities where people are selling everything from uh, food without any licensing, uh, clothing, tools, whatever else they, they can have without any license or, of course, sales tax. And at the same time, if you want to start a business in a building, like kind of you would think you would, and want to go through the requisite uh, permitting to improve the structure, uh, get a business license, pay taxes and so forth, it's pretty tough. So it's really a study in a very strange kind of government, isn't it? A government that squeezes a few, ignores the rest, uses the money it squeezes to encourage and sometimes finance the problems that are going on with the people are not even taxing or regulating to some extent. It's... I don't know. I, this is something that would take a lot of time to think about and really analyze. I mean, you realize it's crazy and wrong and unfair, even when it's hard to define fair. It's it's still unfair in a broad enough way that you can say, well, I think that's pretty unfair. And so what is it? What kind of government is that? It's not communism. I mean, not even in the classical sense. It's certainly not communism in the sense of um, Marx and Engels. It's not even communism in the sense of the uh, you know upside-down world of the Soviet Union and most of the other communist countries we think about, China and things like that. It's nothing to do with that. And at the same time, it's certainly not capitalism. It's not a Republican democracy because the people don't want it. Now... You can make an argument that the people there are voting for the politicians that are doing this. But that doesn't seem quite right because endlessly discussions, endless discussions with these people that are the voters, they don't like it. And yet somehow the elections keep putting these people back in office who do things that the public doesn't seem to want. That's another question mark floating around out there I guess we, we can look at about how that machine works. Remember machine politics. And see, since we've started seeing them on a national level, we haven't seen them as as effective or as blatant on a national level until the last few years. And certainly there are some problems with voting, and we know some real serious problems with the way people vote, the way they're counted. Well, the allowances that are made for things that come in that are counted as valid votes, right? That's been changed everywhere to the extent that... uh, it doesn't seem to even bear much of a resemblance of what it was even 10 years ago. So those changes have happened and makes everyone pause about how the voting is going on. But it's also the way the vote is is moved. In other words, the get out the vote, who they're interested in getting out the vote, how they target certain groups, leave other groups alone, make it harder for some people to vote than the accused Republicans doing it by, you know, I suppose, making it much easier for some groups or alleged groups to get ballots in and doing nothing to make sure that the groups you don't like can't get them in, which would all be fine, except that a lot of what's going on is being done with public money. And that's not good. And the privatization of the voting process that happened in the last election through Zuckerbucks, remember, $460 million and other 
heavily financed stuff from leftist groups to essentially came in to some of these areas and subsumed the duties of the clerks, county clerks, secretary of state's jobs and stuff like this to getting votes in and all sorts of things. No one had ever really seen that before. No law against it because nobody ever thought it would happen. That someone would spend that kind of money from being that far away in a completely different state, more than halfway across the country, to influence an election. So, you know, people say, well, there's no law against it. Yeah, because nobody thought anybody would do it. Well, here we are. That could be the interesting part. All righty, we're back. Taking our bought us a through plane ticket. We're right back here on the radio. Thanks for sticking with us here. Rick Widener getting right. Okay, NZZKL, GLN, and the Internet, and all sorts of other places. So we're back. I have some stuff here for this segment because I wanted to go through it. You know, I wanted to touch back on something we've been talking about, about Gen Zers, the, the Zoomers, the uh, last generation we've had into the workforce here. If you want to call it entering the workforce, I may be, you know, forcing that phrase a little bit. The Zs, the Zoomers. I had a uh, article that I saved and brought in because I thought it was kind of funny. We've talked about how difficult Zoomers are in some instances to integrate into the workforce or to get into the workforce or let them stay in the workforce or understanding what a workforce is, things like that. But apparently, they don't understand a lot of common phrases we use in society and sometimes particularly in the workplace. And so I saw this story on that, and I thought it would be interesting because it just it just kind of shows you there that there's ten phrases out there that we take for granted, and it isn't just, and they kind of imply in the article, well, it's just you know these kids are young and, this, and that's part of it, but the other part of it is a lot of these common idioms that we use in the workplace and in just out and about with people are not things that necessarily even came about during our lifetime or the lifetimes of of the generation before us, depending on who you are, obviously and what your age might be, we're familiar with them because we've integrated in society, right? We've interacted in society. We've heard these phrases before, and we know what they are, even though they're, they're, they may not have arisen in our lifetime, you know, or in the, our experience, but we know what they are. They've just sort of woven their way through. As we know, a lot of the sayings that we have every day that will work their way through our vocabulary from World War II because they were phrases that were brought up and used in the military. And we had so many men in uniform, and women in uniform too, for that matter, during that period that when they came home, they brought a lot of these phrases from the military with them. They worked their way into kind of the common idioms and began being used, and people understood what they meant based on their context. But in many instances, when you ask them, where did that come from, they don't know. Uh, one of the, my favorite phrases, and I've probably bored you folks with it before, but is the whole nine yards, right? Well, I gave it the whole nine yards. When you ask somebody, well, what does that mean? Well, we know what it means. It means we tried as much as we could. We put everything into it, right? What is it really? Where does it come from? As I've, I've said before, when you ask people and press them on it, they think it's a sports analogy because it sounds kind of like football, except that football is kind of in 10-yard increments. What it comes from is, of course, World War II, where, and particularly in the Pacific, that the long bands of ammunition will be fed into some of the machine guns. And I, I want to say, oh, boy, I'm not even going to guess which particular aircraft it was, because there's two or three aircrafts that had uh, 50 caliber machine guns on them. But they these, these long strings, if you want to call them that, uh, of ammunition, right, 
the belts, as some people refer them in, a lot of them were cloth, uh, that fed through the machine guns. Many of them were nine yards long. And so a pilot would come back and they would be asked, how did it go? And say, I gave him the whole nine yards, meaning I emptied my 50 calibers or 30 calibers, I guess in some instances, I emptied my guns, right? So I gave them all I had, whole nine yards. Well, there's a lot of stuff like that out there. We use them in the workplace. And like I said, you don't have to have been around when these things originated, but you're socialized in understanding what they're talking about. So many of the Gen Zs have been at home in their parents' basement or not working or playing video games all day, whatever the case may be. They haven't been in the social settings to pick up a lot of these old phrases and see them in context and what the heck they're talking about. So there was 10 out there they came up with. One of them was bite the bullet. Of course, you know, that's going to be something that I'm just guessing off the top of my head has to do with people who were undergoing some painful situation. They give them something to bite on. So they'd bite through their tongue or something like that. Um, I may be wrong on that. But, you know, it was not uncommon to give people a strip of rawhide or a stick to bite on before we had anesthetic. Well, they were working on some stuff. Back to the salt mines. Most people know what that is inferring. The salt mines, very difficult places for anybody to work. A lot of people had a lot of health problems and difficulties. The salt mines are, you can imagine what it's like to be mining salt, uh, how hard that would be. That's something they didn't seem to understand what that was. Apparently, they did understand some of the more language they were comfortable with was uh, quiet quitting is something they're very comfortable with. And take this offline which I think we understand both of those ourselves. The other ones I couldn't quite understand was cut the mustard. Obviously an older phrase that I doubt if any of us have been around uh, any place that was uh, making mustard by hand and somebody had to cut it in some way. I haven't even looked that up, but we know what that means. It means an employee or somebody, somebody's not cutting the mustard. They're not getting it done. Flogging a dead horse. Hopefully we don't see that anymore. Not a lot of horses in the street. People aren't flogging any of them dead or otherwise. I would be very upset with him and flogging a live horse, and it would be upsetting and disturbing on another level if someone's flogging a dead one. Obviously, it means there's no point in trying to get a horse that is, in fact, expired to do anything, no matter how much you try and coerce it. It seems to me not that difficult, but throw in the towel. They don't seem to understand that one. That was another one they complained about. Well, throw in the towel, of course, refers to uh, athletic events, boxing in particular, where when your boxer is getting his clock cleaned and you're worried about him being too badly injured before the round is over, you throw a towel into the ring to show that that's it. You're done. Didn't understand that one. Burning the midnight oil. I mean, staying up late, doing things, referring to a time probably when they had oil lamps, another sort of time period in our history that I doubt if a lot of people listening were around for that originally, but you know what it means. They don't. Let sleeping dogs lie. I mean, come on. <laughs> you know, do you want the dog to bark? Probably not. Don't wake it up. I mean, I'm not sure that that shouldn't be that difficult. The fact they have trouble with that says a little bit more about their reasoning ability. What's the beef? That's the last one they came up with that they couldn't understand. Now, we refer to arguments or fights as beefs. You have a beef with somebody. I'm not exactly sure off the top of my head where that came from. But there's even a popular, I think it's on Netflix, uh, popular drama, comedy drama, 
called beef about two people that have a road rage incident and are constantly trying to get back and forth with each other, you know, doing things to each other's property and this and that, which sounds worse than it is. It's actually pretty good and, and kind of funny. It is funny. But so it's, that's not a dead word if somebody says, I have a beef with you. But that is something probably you'd have to have some context around. So these poor guys are just lost. And it isn't just because of their age. It's because they haven't been around anything. They haven't. You pass these things on. Like burning the midnight oil is something that's been passed on since people had oil lamps. So it's not like it just, you know, if you're if you're 40, you know what it is because you were burning oil lamps. No. It's because you were around people generationally, people before you and people before them, generationally had that phrase and it gets pushed forward. These guys aren't out to be socialized in any significant way. You know what you're talking about. They don't have any context on it. They don't have any context on life experience. This just kind of underlines part of that. The people who did the survey said that the biggest difficulties they had with Gen Zers came from communication challenges that correlated directly with things such as morale, commitment, and productivity. What a surprise. How did that happen there? Anyway, part of that, of course, may be their education. Now, I thought I'd bring this up, too. If you go back to our website there at uh, rickwagnershow.com, you will see a story that we posted from here in the state where I'm at in Colorado. The Colorado Teachers Union, uh, be the Colorado Education Association, the CEA, uh, for those who have trouble uh, with their spelling, and with, which apparently might be some of these people in the CEA, they passed a resolution recently declaring that capitalism is an inherently exploits children and public schools. The quote is, capitalism inherently exploits children, public schools, land, labor, and resources, the resolution reads. Yeah. That's your uh, teachers union, Education Association of Colorado. They give large amounts of money to all sorts of uh, strange things when they come up on the ballot. And so this is this is what they're coming from. Now, that you and I would stand for people who think like this, having significant input into the classroom, particularly with children, is kind of problematic, isn't it? There was a time when no one would even conceived of putting that out. Not because you didn't think of it. I'm sure there's always been a few people thinking that in teachers' unions and other unions and all kinds of places. But they wouldn't have said it out loud. Now we're reaching that point in history where, as they say, they're saying the quiet quiet part out loud. They not only are saying it, they're shouting it. They're proud of it. This is a virtue, isn't it? Being an anti-capitalist is now a virtue in many people's eyes. Well, I'm against capitalism because, you know, it's exploitive and it separates the means of production from the worker and that it is inherently, you know, uh, transphobic and uh, racist and you just name it. They just attach things to them without any real evidence of it. And it's just become the talking point, isn't it? Because that's exactly what it is. It's just a talking point. It ha- you, if you force somebody to explain what they mean by that in depth, in a, in a cogent manner, thoughtful, cogent manner, not a bunch of jingoism or some, some two or three lines that's off a bumper sticker, I doubt that the vast majority of people who would espouse that or voted for this resolution could articulate anything beyond a bumper sticker idea of what they're talking about. But what you just heard is probably all they know about it. 
and that's a teacher's union. I guess some of them might have a good idea about it, you know. I don't think it's a good idea, but they might be able to explain it cogently, but I doubt if very many are. It's a very sad situation, and in most societies it would be surprising, and in ours it's not. Not anymore. You know, I was thinking earlier that one of the sad things now is on some of the sites that I look at stories and things on, I could set the web browser up and just come back in the room every 15 minutes or so and refresh it. And much of the time I would get like a new outrageous story that would pop up at the top of the uh, browser, right? Uh, from some someplace in the country, so, uh, yet another outrage would pop up, something outrageous. I don't recommend everybody be outraged all the time. We get enough of that from various news sources on both sides. If you look at MSNBC and even on Fox and some of these, there's a, there's a continuing outrage that has a tendency to harden our viewpoints. We become inured to it. As long as people keep screaming, we turn out the screaming. We think it's the same thing over and over again. Often it is. The danger of that, of course, is then if things actually become important immediately, we sometimes have that screened out. Much of the points that we hear, to be fair, are very important. But we've heard them so many times in so many different ways, it, it's hard to continue the high blood pressure associated with them. They make our head hurt, but we hear it every day. I mean, tell me something new. Tell me something new about it. This is one of the things I thought Tucker Carlson did well. Take something that we hear about fair amount that we should be thinking about and give me some thoughts on it. Not just more bumper stickers from the right, but some thoughts on it. How is this different? Where does this take us? What does this really mean? What are the motivations behind this, do you think? And we're never going to be correct all the time, but make people feel like you're you're attempting to give them something to be thoughtful about, something to sit back and consider for a while. Maybe make their own mind up. Maybe it's different than what you're saying, but at least give them something to chew on a little bit. I hope that any Gen Zers out there, uh, I didn't confuse them by that. Uh, it's a, it's sort of a, well, it's a metaphor, really, to chew on it. It's to think about it. So I think that that is something we need to have more of. It's, you know, but it's hard when we have these constant outrages. Here's one, for example. Remember how we were listening, to, or remember, excuse me, how we were listening to the Biden administration? No one's trying to st steal your gas stoves or this or that. Well, of course they are. They've been whispering about it for a long time, trying to get all natural gas products out of people's houses. New York has just become the first state to pass legislation banning the use of natural gas for heating and cooking. I believe that's uh, something that I put on the website from New York Post. And what they've done is, look, everything, uh, I think, I'd have to look at the year, but it's in a couple of years. Here, let's see. I'll, I, have that, I have that out in front of me here pretty soon. Uh, let's see. <laughs> it's just so sad to listen to this. Yes, of course, it comes through their Consumer Product Safety Commission uh, because they said gas-powered stoves are a, quote, hidden health hazard. Okay. So what I would recommend everybody out there is that you get uh, that fire pit going out there 
Get some uh, wood in it. Start cooking over that. Save yourself from that bad gas stove inside the house. Oof. The New York Times said that the provisions will require new buildings to be constructed. This is in New York. With only electric hookups for appliances utilities beginning in 2025. The law will go into effect for buildings with fewer than seven stories beginning in 2026 and will kick in for taller buildings by 2029. Wow, that's great, isn't it? Have uh, they looked into the cost of heating with electricity? An inefficient heat source like that? Say nothing about cooking. What surprises me about this, folks, is New York, especially the city of New York, it's full of uh, what they refer to as foodies, right? People who are who watch all these cooking shows. And granted, some of them are kind of fun, I think. I guess. I haven't ever watched any of them, but I can see where they could be fun. At least one or two of them. And so they love cooking and this and that. And universally, people who seem to cook a lot will say that they vastly prefer gas, natural gas cooking, to electricity because of the way it can be adjusted, the temperature can be uh, moved around and, you know, a little easier than how you do it with electricity, and they prefer it. I'm not enough of a cook to really know the difference. Uh, you could cook my food with a magnifying glass outside or on a stove, and I probably couldn't tell the difference. But these people claim to, that there's a big difference. So it's surprising that they would, uh, you know, go after the natural gas stoves in New York, partly because, as we talked about, the uh, oppositional defiance syndrome uh, disorder, oppositional defiance disorder, yeah. Um, I think this is a manifestation of that. This is, uh, you know, more government defiance. They are, it is uh, administration by defiance. Yes, you know, it's government defiance of the voter. They're just going to do it anyway because in their mind, they shouldn't have to have everybody's consent to do these things because the people that are consenting aren't nearly as smart and well-informed as they are. So this whole consent of the governed thing, just, it's, you know, come on. Who thought about that? Nobody cares about that. Well, I kind of care about that. There's uh, a couple of things that I thought was discussing with a friend of mine about things that the framers put in the Declaration of Independence about why they thought that they needed to separate from Britain. It seemed to work today. One of them is uh, centralized power. You know, the framers were deeply concerned about the concentration of power that the British monarchy had over them. And that centralization of power is one of the reasons they tried to address that later on in the Constitution. They wanted to protect this, the individual liberties and the rights of the states as they saw them. You know, the colonies became states. What we have now are the same kind of concerns over to the federal government, just substitute the British monarchy for the federal government. And that, you know, the federal government has expired, expanded its power beyond any limits set forth in the Constitution, in my opinion. Coaching on states' rights, your individual freedoms, everything from education, healthcare, and gun control. And it's, it's the same sorts of things that the framers were trying to carry forward when they were addressing the problems with the British monarchy and the colonies, the kinds of overreach that they were doing and how they impacted things. Now, I have this theory that one of the steps on to Serfdom, if I can use Hayek's term, uh, you know, that it's not just his, but it's so identified with him in the road to serfdom. 
is collectivization. And that is that you have to extinguish individual rights. And you start that by making sure there is no delineation between the top ranks of government, the federal government, the national government, let's call it, and anything below it. Everything has to be completely subservient to that. That way, they don't have any arguments with anything. There's no layers to go through. There's just a top-down system. And the states in our situation just become names, like street addresses or something. They don't really have anything else. That has to be eliminated, and that's been going on for a number of years, decades, really, but it's highly accelerated in the last 10 years, to where states' rights, I'm going to say the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment, uh, have just become a joke. I mean, nobody takes that seriously in the government anymore. They're just constantly finding ways to be able to make the states bend to the will of the federal government. Now, some of it's done just through money. They just take our taxes and then, look, if you're not going to do what we want to, now this has been something that's come up recently when it's come to this transgenderism in sports where, you know, the Biden administration has been saying, if you don't allow uh, everybody that's identifying as whatever sex they want to, uh, to compete in, you know, your sport, then we may withhold federal funds from your education budget. That's one of the ways of coercion. But really what it's doing is not only coercing people, it's striking against the idea that that the states have the right to be different than the federal government. The Constitution is the idea that people can do all sorts of things in their state governments so long as they don't exceed the authority that is, uh, rather exceed what the authority of the state that is guaranteed to the individual by the Constitution. Well, the left doesn't like that. They don't want any limitations on national power. And so the states have to be ground down. So first the states are ground down, and then eventually the individuals are. So to collectivize people, to make people so that you your individual rights are just sucked back in to this huge pot of federal power, or uh, I don't like federal power because it implies federalism, national power, you got to wear it down. And, and one of the first steps is not just what happens to you individually, but what happens to your state and its ability to make laws and things that are outside what the feds want. That's something to think about. Talk to you next week.